Yeah, look at that. Listen, we spare no expense with these videos. Welcome, guys, to Downtown Harbor Church. My name is John. If it's your first time here, I'm the lead pastor. My mom just texted me. She goes, I'm watching online. So we have one person watching. That's great. I'm glad we did all that. Hey, Mom, how are you? Good to see you. Anyway, so we are kicking off this brand new series today called The More You Know. We got our inspiration from the 80s and 90s PSA thing at the air there. If you remember those, they come on and say, hey, stay in school for any number of lame reasons. The more you know, boom, cut to black. But the reality is that a couple months ago, we were kind of saying, well, what, what do we want to talk about in sort of September, October? What are we thinking? And a lot of times people will come up to me and they say, hey, what do we believe about X? You know, what, what, do we, what do we believe about Y? And the truth is, a lot of us in this room have said yes to Jesus. We are Christians. We've kind of, quote unquote, joined the club, if you will. But there are aspects of our religion that we don't really know too much about. And so we kind of say, hey, what do we believe about this? Can you clue me in on that kind of a thing? So over the next couple of weeks, we're just going to spend some time taking a look at these major aspects in our faith, trying to get a better understanding so that if somebody asks you, you can talk about it and, you know, not sound like you really have no clue what you're talking about. Okay? That kind of a thing. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been on a job interview? I've been on a couple. Um, they've been brutal. Not because I, you know, botched them or anything, but if you've been on a job interview, you know they're just they're awkward, okay? You don't really know what to say. And inevitably, and I don't know why they're still asking this, it's 2018, but inevitably, at some point, they go to you and they say, okay, tell me your greatest weakness. How do you even answer that question? You're kind of like, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, interestingly enough, I'm a serial killer, Okay. <laughs> I'm great with Excel, beautiful spreadsheets. There are people, however, buried in my basement. I'm not sure if that's an issue for you. I just want to be upfront with that kind of a thing. But because you know this is true. I mean, okay. So the truth is this, you know, you study the company. You know, you want to study the company and so that you're prepared to answer any questions they ask. You want to look like a good candidate. You want to look like a person who's got their stuff together, that if they hire you, okay, you're intelligent, and they want to put you on the payroll. The truth is, and I was thinking about this, when it comes to our faith, people are going to ask you questions, and you need to be prepared to answer them. Now, sometimes they may just want to challenge your faith. If you're a Christian in the room, you, someone may just want to challenge your faith and try to make you feel stupid or whatever the case may be. But sometimes, if you're a Christian in the room, you know that people are genuinely trying to learn more about what you believe. They want to find out about who this God guy is. They want to find out about who this Jesus person is. And if you're a person in the room who maybe isn't a Christian, that's fine, welcome. You can kind of take the day off and just kind of watch what we're talking about because we're going to be talking about the Bible. But the reality is that when someone asks you a question, like my dad always told me going back as early as Thanksgiving 1987, have a soundbite ready. He goes, John, we're going to grandma's today. Uncle Joe, he's going to want to know how third grade is going. Can you just prepare a soundbite? Get ready for that, okay? <laughs> okay. This is why I've got the neuroses I do, okay? This is not a lie. My dad would always say, hey, have a soundbite prepared so people know what's going on with school. But he's right. I mean... You really should have sound bites prepared, little talking points ready so that if somebody asks you a question, you could try to answer them. Because the truth is, if we're being honest with ourselves, a lot of time our conversation goes like this. Hey, I believe in Jesus. Your friend goes, why? And you say, well, I just do. 
Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Job well done. But you know that's the truth. We're kind of just saying, yeah, this is what I believe, and we kind of sound like we don't know what we're talking about. The truth is we have a responsibility to know what we believe. We have a responsibility to know what we believe, to know what we've said yes to, because Peter talks about this specifically in 1 Peter. Check out what he says. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ. You've said yes to him. Revere him in your heart. Lift him up. But always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. What he's saying is that you need to be ready to answer this question. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? Now, this sounds like a very simple question. I think we all say, well, I can answer that. But I guarantee if I pointed at one of you right now, I said, go, you'd probably fumble through it. I would fumble through it. Because I don't think we can really articulate very well why we believe the things that we do. And so our hope today and over the course of the next seven weeks, eight weeks including today, I want to help you answer this question, and I want to equip you to understand all the major aspects of our faith. So no matter what somebody may ask you or what questions you have, you now have some concrete answers. The truth is, when somebody challenges you on your faith, or if somebody just simply wants to know more about what you believe, Peter says, there's a caveat to this. When you're answering their questions or when you're retorting some of their, you know, challenges, so to speak. He says, be, do this. He says, here we go. But do this with gentleness and respect. He says, do this with gentleness and respect. Because the truth is, it's never our intention, I think he's saying. I think he's saying it's never our intention to force our beliefs down someone's throat. We don't see Jesus doing this. Jesus would have conversations, and he was very plain about what the truth was. He would say something along the lines of, I am the way and the truth and the light. But if someone didn't want to believe, he'd just say, that's your prerogative, and he would walk away. But I think a lot of times, unfortunately, Christians get a little overzealous, and sometimes we try to force our beliefs down people's throats. We want to remember, we want to take our advice from Peter. We want to be gentle and respectful with each other, and whoever may ask us questions. Because here's the truth. Starting as early as next week, we are going to be talking about topics from this stage that I can absolutely 100% guarantee you that there will be disagreements on, that we will have differences of opinions when it comes to these aspects of our faith. And whether it's hallway conversations or whether it's at the small groups that are starting on September 18th, we want to make sure that we're gentle and respectful with one another. And the truth is, having disagreements and having differences of opinion inside of a church is actually a really good thing. It's a really good thing because it helps us sharpen what we believe. When we have to articulate our thoughts and, and hear someone else's side and really kind of wrestle around, it sharpens all of our beliefs. So here's something I know. We live in a culture where, where it's your media, whether it's your professor, they say that all religions are equal. All religions are equal. They may say something along the lines of, it doesn't matter what you believe, we all get to God one way or another. Thousand ways to get to God, you know, Oprah says stuff like that. You hear it all the time. All religions are equal. There's a thousand ways to get to God. But then there's a little bit of a caveat. Because they'll say something like, all religions are equal. We're all going the same place, except 
you should watch out for Christianity because that book, mm, that book is full of errors. That book, all religions are the same, yes, they're all equal, but Christianity, mm, watch yourself because that book they use, it's got lies in it. It's not reliable. You can't trust it. The truth is, those voices are so loud in our heads. If you've been in school long enough hearing professors say this and the media saying it, or you read enough articles in the newspaper that say it, you begin to ask yourself the question, well, is the Bible all true? I mean, can I actually believe what I'm reading? So my quick response when I hear something like that is I say something along the lines of this. If the Bible is so easily discredited, how have close to 4 billion people over 2,000 years been duped? And did the math. Since the time of Jesus, there have been about 4 billion Christians. Are we all idiots? I mean, did they get lucky when they concocted this religion that they'd find 4 billion idiots that would believe this? No, I just don't think that's the case. So what do we know about the Bible? What do we know about the Bible? Let's just kind of hit a little bit of a foundation about what the Bible is. So interestingly enough, you may not understand this, but the Bible is not a book. Now, I know it looks like one. I know it's got two covers. It has binding. It has pages. But the Bible is not actually a book. In fact, the Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors in three languages. It was written on three different continents. And it was written over a span of 1,500 years. The 66 books, and here they are kind of in a nice little image, these 66 individual books lived separately, existed separately for hundreds and thousands of years. In fact, they weren't combined into one Bible as we know it until about the year 350 A.D. And what's so amazing is that while these 66 books existed separately, they managed to tell one continuous story of God chasing after his people. So Paul, when he was writing a letter to a young pastor named Timothy, was talking about the Bible. And he he says this, hey, Timothy, understand that all scripture is inspired by God. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we did a sermon series on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying all scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, and teaches us to do what is right. Peter, who's another disciple, takes it a step further because I feel like he knew what was coming down the road, and he says this, all right, understand this first, because don't miss this. No part of the holy writings was ever made up by any man. No part of the holy writings came along because of what man wanted to write, but holy men who belonged to God spoke what the Holy Spirit told them. So the truth is this, the only way we can truly know the things of God is to read the Bible. The only way that we can ever know about God and Jesus and salvation is to read the scriptures. And you may say, well, we're here at church. I mean, can't we learn about this stuff at church? Yeah, you can. But where do you think I'm getting my information from? So the truth is, if you can't trust the Bible, if you can't trust the Bible, then what do we have? If you can't open it up and trust that you're reading something that is true, what do we have? 
You've really got nothing because we believe that the Bible is the sole, the primary authority to learn anything about God. And if you can't trust it, then seriously, you've got nothing. So here's a little, little something that you can use at your next cocktail party, and you can just steal this like you learned this somewhere else. Do you know what the Koran describes Jews and Christians? Do you know how the, the Koran does this? I know we hear the words infidel and all that other stuff. But the Quran actually says that we are people of the book. I think that's fascinating. This ancient religion looks at Christians, looks at Jews, and says that they recognize the fact that God revealed himself through the Bible. And they call us the people of the book. And yet so many people of the book don't trust the book and don't read the book. So the question that we have to answer today, and it will set us up for the next several weeks, is this. Is the Bible a reliable record of what happened? Can you trust it? Can you believe in it? Is it reliable? So secular scholars, they're generally the people, whether it's the media or what other have you, they're the ones who will say you can't trust the Bible. So what I want to do today is I want to use their tests, how they decide whether or not a manuscript is reliable. So the question is, how do historians, how do historians determine if an ancient manuscript is reliable? What system do they use? Well, they do a couple of things. Number one, when they've got the ancient manuscript in their hands, they take a look at the date and the distribution. They say, all right, when was this document first written? And when is this document that we have from? And then how widely was it distributed? That kind of a thing. And then they take a look at the author's motive, and they say, well, what do we know about this author? I mean, was he considered reliable back then? Did he have an agenda? Was he paid to write this? Did, did he have something to gain from write this? Did he, did he write this under duress? What do we know about the author's motives? So the truth is, when it comes to proving the reliability of the Bible, there are many ways that I could do it for you. I could look at archaeological evidence. That's actually really interesting. I could look at prophecies that were uh, in the Old Testament and show you when they came true in the New Testament. We could take a look at this thing called the criterion of embarrassment. That's a fascinating one. That's the idea that when people are trying to make themselves look good, particularly in historical documents, they leave out embarrassing details because they want to make themselves look good. And they also bolster certain claims about themselves to make themselves look good. You see this in modern day. I was talking to my buddy Ross, who's from London. And he tells me, he's my age, he tells me that when he grew up going to school, they never taught them about the American Revolution. They left that out. Civil War, they talk about that, but they don't talk about the American Revolution. Why do you think that is? I don't know. So I want to talk to you today just about manuscript evidence. That's the only one I want to talk to you about today because otherwise we'd be here for hours. And the reason I want to talk to you about manuscript evidence alone is because that holds a special place in my heart. Before I was a pastor, I was actually a rare book dealer. That was my job. I bought and sold collections. I would curate private libraries for collectors. And I got my start at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Maybe some of you have been there. I worked in the medieval arts department, and it was great. Here's actually a picture of me when I was there. 18 years old, look how studious I look. That's my buddy Christian. Christian is now a VP at Prada. Obviously, our lives have gone in different routes, okay? But I mean, really, that's... I really had my life together back then, okay? Ten minutes later, I had a stapler to my head because I was 18, okay? 
But here's the truth. Here's like an up-close look at what I worked on. So this particular image is 15th century illuminated choir books. They were two to three feet tall. They were amazing. And it was a great opportunity. And it sent me into the career of rare books. But what I learned when I was at that museum is that ancient manuscripts are expensive and they're extremely delicate and they're very, very rare. To simply have one in your hands is a miracle that they still exist. And they're so expensive that only a few own them and most, the ones that survive, are only found in museums. The truth is, when it comes to history, ancient history specifically, the only way that we're going to learn about it is through these ancient manuscripts. So let me just depart from the Bible and Christianity for a second to talk to you about ancient history. Let's talk about the Roman Empire. This is something we've all learned about in either middle school or high school or college or on the History Channel, whatever the case may be. Let's take a look at just Roman history for a moment. So what I did is I just got a random high school textbook, and I just opened up to a section on Rome, specifically when it talks about Caesar in France. And it says this, in his ten, and this is just a random textbook, in his 10 years of being proconsul, Caesar brought all of Gaul, that's France, under Roman rule and showed his superb abilities as a military leader. Now, pay very close attention to this next paragraph. It says this. Caesar issued written reports about his campaign and victories to keep the people of Rome informed. Students of Latin can still read these clearly detailed reports in what is known as the Gallic Wars. So if you're a student and your teacher hands you this textbook, here's what you're, here's what you're learning. It says this. If you want to study if you want to learn about Rome, specifically Gaul, you have to study the Gallic Wars, which were issued by Caesar, which were written by a paid author to inform Romans a thousand miles away of Caesar's victories. Now, let me ask you a question. You're very smart people here in this room. Do you think there might be any kind of reliability issues here? Think about this. The only way that we as modern Americans learn anything about Caesar's campaign in France is to read the Gallic Wars, which he paid for, so that he could tell his buddies back in Rome how good he's doing. Do you think that author may have left some details out? Do you think that author may have bolstered some claims to make his emperor, who's paying his salary, look good? We don't really know, but if someone told me that was propaganda, I might say, mm, you can make a good case for it. That's author's motives. But let's look at the date and distribution of the Gallic Wars. The Gallic Wars was written in 50 BC. We don't have any original copies of the Gallic Wars. We do have a few. In fact, we have 10, and they're from 900 AD. So your textbook that you read is based on a document of which we only have 10 that was written 950 years after the original. And yet, no one ever disputes the authenticity of Roman history. I mean, imagine, if you, imagine your professor's reaction. If you said, mm, I call into question the authenticity of what you're telling me, shut up. Take your notes. Test is on Friday. Well, we just don't do that. We just take it, we believe it, and we move on. How about this one? Is there any subject more universal 
than Greek philosophy. All of us, and you've probably blocked it out of your mind at some point, took some form of Greek philosophy. They learned it in Asia, they learned it in Europe, we learned it in America, and we've been studying it for thousands of years. So let's talk about a couple of the major philosophers. How about Aristotle? He wrote in 400 BC. We don't have any of those, but we do have a few, and they're from 1100 AD. I'm not great at math, but I think that's about 1,500 years. And we have 49 copies of that. How about Plato, contemporary of him? He wrote in 400 BC. We don't have any of those, but we do have some from 900. We have seven. We have seven copies of Plato, yet entire college courses are based around this man, and we have seven copies from what looks like, go back, I'm trying to do the math real quick. What is that, uh, 1,100 years? 13, thank you very much. And the calculator up here. Here's something even more shopping, shocking. Major aspects of the U.S. government are based on these men and their philosophies, and we have seven copies. Yet we never call it to question anything about the philosophers. We never call it to question anything about the Roman Empire, and yet we constantly call it to question the Old and the New Testament. So let's just talk about the New Testament for a second. What does that look like? We have 5,686 complete ancient, just Greek, New Testaments. I'm talking Matthew all the way to Revelations. We have 5,686 complete Greek New Testaments. We have 24,000 copies of the New Testament written in various ancient languages. And you look at Plato, and his was after, what, 1,400 years, 1,300 years after the original? The oldest copy we have was written 29 years after the original. Folks, that's unheard of. To have a manuscript that's only 29 years after the original, and it's thousands of years old, unheard of. Here's a chart that we made. I mean, take a look at this chart. You got 24,000 copies of the New Testament. We call that into question. You got seven of Plato. Good. Where do I sign up? Not a problem. The truth is this. There is no body, no body of ancient literature that is better documented than the New Testament. Any secular historian will tell you that this is true, that they would kill for the kind of documentation that the New Testament has. The other question we have to answer is, so what are their motives? People call to question the motives of the biblical authors all the time. You can't trust them. They're just men. They make mistakes. You can't trust what they read. So this week I was trying to ask myself a couple of questions. I said, all right, why would somebody, if we're saying the Bible is fake, let's call it, why do people make up religions? Why do people start cults? What are some of the things that they're interested in? I think they're interested in three things. Sex, money, and power. That's just my opinion. I think that's the three things they want, the three things they're interested in as to why they concoct these lies, why they try to get these religious movements started. The issue is, when I put these three words on the screen in 2018, we have a couple of problems. 
All you have to do is open up the newspaper this week and you see that this is a major issue for the Catholic Church right now. All you've got to do is scroll back a couple weeks before that and see that this is a major issue for the Protestant Church right now. See, the problem is these are just men and sin gets into their lives. But we're not talking about modern preachers. We're not talking about the modern church. We're talking about ancient New Testament authors. So the question is, were they in it for sex? Were they in it for money? Were they in it for power? Ephesians, it says this, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. It was written by Paul who was beheaded for his beliefs. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give it to the poor. He doesn't say give it to me. He doesn't say give it to your pastor. Sell your stuff, give it to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. Written by Matthew, who was crucified upside down for his beliefs. He told his Roman captors, he goes, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Turn me upside down. And they were very willing to oblige him. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark, dragged to death for his beliefs. People call it the question, the motives of these men. But their motives were very simple and they were explicit. The only thing they wanted in life was anybody who could hear, anybody who could see. They wanted them to know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's the only thing they wanted, and they died for it, so that we could have these manuscripts today. Folks, the evidence in favor of the Bible being reliable is absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. The question is this. So why don't secular historians reference the Bible? I mean, if it's so accurate, if it's so well-documented, why why, I mean, why isn't that in our textbook? Why don't we read that to learn about what happened so many years ago? So I want to be politically correct in, in how I say this, but I, I, I think the truth is that there's a prejudice against the supernatural. I think a lot of us say things like, well, I'll take a look at those ancient manuscripts, but if I even get a whiff of something like a miracle, I'm out. I'm out. I've got no problem with God, but a miracle doesn't work for me. I've never seen miracles. I've never seen supernatural. That's not going to work for me. Folks, here's the truth. It is fallacious. You like that word? It is fallacious, meaning it's not logical, if you will, okay, to judge the authenticity of ancient manuscripts based on your present experience. Meaning, 
If you've said something like, I've never seen or experienced a supernatural like a miracle, so it can't exist. I've never seen it happen. I've never witnessed it. My mom's never seen it. My dad's never seen it. My grandparents have never seen it. So it doesn't exist. Here's the truth. This is a mistaken belief based on an unsound argument. That is a mistaken belief based on an unsound argument. Because the reality is that I could tell you stories about the supernatural that would make the hair on your arms stand up. And I will never tell those stories from this stage. But I've told a couple people in this room those stories. And I've told them at separate times. And every time, they've stopped me halfway through and they go, stop, stop, stop. The hair on my arm is standing up. Look, the hair on my arm is standing up. The reason is because the Holy Spirit inside of them was resonating with the supernatural and saying, this is truth. You may never have experienced this, but I am letting you know through the Holy Spirit that this is truth. See, the truth is, for many of us, we accept the Bible as truth because it resonates with our experience. We're reading the words and we're saying, yes, I, I, just, I just feel the truth in the words that I'm reading. And, and we trust the Bible because we've been transformed and we've been set free by its teachings. See, but the truth is, and when Peter's talking about that hope that we have in Christ, see, the truth is the hope that we have in Christ isn't based on that mere feeling, but sound historical evidence. So what's the practical? It's your first time here at DHC. Every single week we put this word practical up on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave here on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So the first one is, let's call it simple, but it's not easy. It's this. You can have confidence that the Bible is reliable. It holds up to academic scrutiny. It blows other ancient documents out of the water. You can trust the words in red. Remember the old days, if you've been a Christian for a long time, the Bible used to put Jesus' words in red. Wanted to make sure you understood what the most important parts were. When you read those words in red, you can trust them. You can know that for thousands of years, God has protected those manuscripts so that we can have them today, and they hold up to academic scrutiny. I also want to challenge you to be like the Bereans. You're probably like, well, who the heck are the Bereans? I'm glad you asked. So Luke, in the book of Acts, talks about them. And he says this. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message, and he's talking about the message of Jesus, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. See, what Luke is saying is he's saying, don't just blindly accept everything you hear, not just in the world, but in church. Do your homework. I can promise you this. I do my homework for what I tell you guys from up here. 
I spend hours and hours and hours to making sure it is scripturally correct. But to quote LeVar Burton, you don't have to take my word for it, okay? You can trust the Bible, and according to Luke, you should go back and read it to make sure everything that you hear squares up with the truth of Scripture. Because at some point in your life, and it could come as early as today, you're going to need to be prepared to answer. Someone's going to say, hey, what do you believe about the Bible? And maybe you can answer it because of today. Maybe you've learned just a little bit more about why the Bible is reliable. Maybe if you're somebody who doesn't believe the Bible is reliable at all, maybe this is nudging you towards saying, all right, maybe I'll give it a chance. See, I think, though, when you hear a message like this, there's a couple of groups of people. I think there are some people that say, I'm pumped. I love it. I'm so encouraged. I cannot wait to tell people about these facts. I think there's some of us who say, I'm a little nervous now because I'm brand new to this thing called, you know, Jesus, this, this movement called Christianity, and, and I, don't, I just don't know if I know enough. Or maybe you're somebody who's just not very articulate, and that's okay, and you're just saying, I just don't know if I could be prepared to answer somebody if they asked me. If you're that person, if you don't feel like you could answer someone on the spot, here's the best answer you can give them. I don't know. But let's go look together. Because the truth is, if they're just simply looking to make you feel like an idiot and to challenge you about their beliefs, then they don't care about anything you know. But if this is someone who truly wants to learn about your God and Jesus, then what better activity could there be for the two of you going together into the scriptures and learning together? The truth is this. The Bible is reliable. And it can change everything. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come here today and just for all of us to just learn a little bit more about you. I want to thank you that you inspired those authors so many thousands of years ago, that you protected their words, that you protected those documents over the course of thousands of years, year in, year out, Lord, you protected it so that we would have it today, Lord. And that it is just such an impressive body of work that we can trust. I pray, Lord, that if someone is here today and, and they don't know who you are, that maybe they'd feel comfortable opening up the Bible. That maybe they might feel comfortable for the first time in their life, taking a peek at those words, especially the ones in red, and learning more about your son Jesus, how he came to this earth to die for our sins so that we can be made right with you. Lord, if there are folks in this room who have been Christians all their lives, I pray that today is an encouragement for them. Lord, that this wonderful book that we call the Bible is just so true and so real, Lord. I place all these requests in your son Jesus' name. Amen.